this morning, we're looking at the last two verses of Jude, and uh, they are glorious. So we will enjoy our time together this morning. You actually stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God, which Jude has written, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together again. Father, with the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I listened to... Pastor Dan's wonderful message from last week as I was on vacation last Sunday. I was greatly edified by it, as I'm sure you were. And in his opening illustration, he mentioned several kind of snapshots in his life um, wherein perseverance to the end was beautifully illustrated. And one particular subject he mentioned was running, and uh, in particular running marathons. He said that the Turners are runners, which is, I mean, y'all, it's impressed me ever since I've known you. Um, that you guys are runners, and it, it impresses me because the greens are not runners. The greens are, uh, we're more like sitters, I guess. I don't, I don't know how else to describe it. I, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a, one of the greatest preachers of all time, one of my favorite preachers of all time. He was also a medical doctor, and so that kind of legitimizes what he once said. Uh, I kind of take my philosophy after this. He once said, uh, I don't run if I can walk, I don't walk if I can stand, and I don't stand if I can sit. Um, and I should add, maybe I don't sit if I can lie down. Um, that's, that's a good philosophy in life. Uh, exercise is very important. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, I actually do run a little bit. I have a running limit. Um, three miles is the top amount, the top measurement that I'm willing to run. I don't like running. It's purely functional for me. And I figure that, um, you know, if I ever find myself in a life or death emergency situation, it probably won't require me to run more than three miles. And if it does, it's probably just, I'd rather die instead of run more than three miles. So three miles is the limit. We're just going to leave it at three miles and, uh, and go no more than that. Running a marathon, therefore, as you might imagine, is like, it's kind of unthinkable for me. Uh, and Dan mentioned running a marathon and getting kind of tired and distracted about halfway through, and I would be kind of out of the race long before that, like three miles into it, probably. And I think if we're all honest, all of us at times may feel similarly about running the marathon of the Christian life. You know, maybe uh, you're looking around at all of the challenges facing the church as a whole and local churches like us and, and us as individual Christians. 
and you're thinking, you know, I'm just not entirely sure that we're going to make it. Or maybe you're thinking about what like the, the last year's been like for you, newfound challenges you've, you've faced as a Christian. Maybe there's certain temptations and besetting sins sticking to you like burrs or particular doctrines that are a departure from biblical Christianity but seem somewhat attractive to you. And you're just not sure if you're really going to stick it out and win this fight. Perhaps there are certain practices, disciplines, habits, rhythms in the Christian life that that right now just feel like a slog to you, and you feel tired and worn out, and you're just not sure if you're truly equipped with what you need to continue on contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It seems like the churches to which Jude was writing might have known something of what that feels like. You know, they were facing the challenges of of false teachers, and they were seeing friends, uh, people that, that, that they loved and knew, duped by these ungodly charlatans. They were seeing people around them give in to living sensual lives marked by sexual immorality and the love of money, and they were, they were likely even feeling tempted to give in to these ways of living themselves. Those are, those are strong temptations for us as human beings. They were probably tired and worn out, possibly burnt out by, by dealing with all the sorts of challenges that were facing them as a people, and they were likely wondering whether or not they and their brothers and sisters in Christ would truly persevere through this marathon that we call the Christian life. And Jude here wants to assure them with the promise that they will. They will persevere. You might remember this. Jude starts with a similar word of assurance in verses 1 and 2. Jude, in, in verses 1 and 2 of Jude, he starts with words of assurance, promising them, telling them, you are those who are called and beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. He starts with the word of assurance, and then he moves on in verses 3 to 4 to give them words of admonishment, uh, calling them, admonishing them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then in the body of the letter from Jude uh, 5, verse 5 to 16, he makes announcements of judgment on these false teachers and all who might follow them. And then in verses 17 to 23, as Pastor Dan went through this last week, he admonishes his hearers again, calling them to persevere and to have mercy and to remember as you saw, and now he ends in verses 24 to 25 with another word of assurance. And it's, it's, you can see some similarities here in this final word of assurance to the word of assurance we found in the beginning in verses 1 and 2, and that he emphasizes that God is keeping his people and protecting his people from falling away, and yet it's a little different. It's a little different because this word of assurance is also a song of adoration. It's a song of adoration. It's, it's what theologians call a doxology. A doxology. Uh, a doxology is a song of adoration and praise. And doxologies in Scripture uh, typically have the, the, the same formula, and that formula is this. It names something that God does, and then it praises Him for the particular attributes related to that thing that he does. Okay, so you can actually go to Romans 16, 25 to 27, to see a, a very similar formula, a, a doxology. There Paul says this, listen. 
It says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, uh, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So pause there for a moment. Okay, that's what God does. He strengthens his people by Paul's gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, and he's revealed these things in the scriptures, and now they're being propagated throughout the whole world so that all nations and tribes and tongues will become obedient to the faith. That's what God does. This is God's glorious plan that he is unveiling, and he has made this plan, and he's carrying out this plan before our very eyes, this plan to redeem and renew all things and all peoples and all creation. It is a glorious plan that God is now carrying out in and through Jesus Christ. And so Paul praises God for his great wisdom, which led to this plan being made and carried out by saying, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, amen. It is by God's wisdom that he made and carries out such a magnificent plan. And so Paul worships and praises God for his great wisdom, which led to such an astonishing plan being carried out before our very eyes. That's the doxology of Romans 16. But here, Jude does something very similar. The thing that God does that Jude names is that he preserves and protects his people from falling away, and he preserves and protects his people to keep them until the return of Jesus Christ, when he will then present his people to himself as his beloved prize. And then Jude worships God for doing that thing, for being that kind of savior, for being the one who has all glory and majesty and dominion and authority, these attributes by which he keeps his people for that day. And so if we were to sum up this this text, these verses, in a single simplified sentence, it would be this, praise the preserving and presenting God. And that's the idea that we want to unpack this morning as we look at Three points, he is able to preserve, he is able to present, and he is entitled to praise. First, he is able to preserve. Jude writes, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now, you've probably noticed this word keep come up. Uh, I think it comes up, this is the fifth time in Jude's letter. Keeps coming up. And while this word actually translated as keep here is different than the previous times in which we've seen, it's a different word than, than what's been translated previously in Jude, um, it's, it actually is still getting at the same idea. I imagine that Jude maybe just said, maybe I shouldn't use the same word for a fifth time, maybe we'll just use a synonym for the word uh, that I was using previously uh, for the sake of not repeating myself too much. The meaning is the same. He's saying that God is able to protect and preserve his people. And this word here even takes on the flavor of like, uh, of guarding something, keeping careful watch over something so as to protect it and preserve it. And what does God protect and preserve his people from? He says, from stumbling, from stumbling. And again, 
This is an interesting word because at times this word might simply mean to commit sin. Uh, And in fact, the verb this word is derived from simply means to sin in James 2.10 and 3.2. But one thing you need to understand about reading the Bible is that the same word does not always mean the same thing. You have to look at the particular context to see what a particular word means in a particular sentence, in paragraph, in book. And when we look at the whole of Jude, in the particular context uh, of this verse, when looking at the context, it's obvious that Jude is not merely talking about committing sin when he uses this word stumbling. He's talking about apostasy. He's talking about falling away from the faith. He's talking about, stumbling here means to fully or finally fall away from this faith that has been delivered to us. Stumbling here does not mean to fall in the sense that you give in to temptation and sin on a particular occasion. We all have done that. We all do that. We all will do that. And nowhere in the scriptures does God promise that we will see sinless perfection on this side of glory. And so here, Paul, Jude, rather, is not saying that God will, co- will keep believers perfect, but he will keep believers preserved. We will not see perfection on this side of glory, but we do have this promise from God. We will be preserved until glory when perfection is finally attained. God will see to it. And this is, of course, addressing this doctrine that we call the, the preservation of the saints, the preservation of the saints. Sometimes it's called the perseverance of the saints, uh, but I I agree with R.C. Sproul. He once said that the preservation of the saints uh, better captures the heart of the doctrine, and most of the time it's safe to agree with R.C. Sproul, uh, most of the time. But uh, the preservation of the saints, it's it's a doctrine that we teach at this church. I preached on this actually earlier this year and did a lengthier treatment of this particular doctrine, Uh, but it's it's a doctrine that simply confesses that God preserves his people and keeps us from falling away. When it comes to our salvation, it's not that Jesus made the down payment, but now we have a monthly bill to upkeep, and if we don't pay that monthly bill, we're out of here. No, when Jesus said, it is finished, it was done, it was fully paid for, we are redeemed forevermore. We don't believe that while God was powerful enough to raise us from our spiritual death in the new birth, that he now lacks the power to keep us alive along the way. No, we we believe that God preserves his people. As J.I. Packer once put it, your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. And this is the exact point that Jude is making when he says that God is able to do this. And that word translated as able may be somewhat uh, uh, anemic here. This word stresses the power and, and capability of God to keep us. As the God who, who spoke the universe into existence, the, the, the God who created swirling planets and blazing suns, the one who designed the complexity of the human hand, the the God who upholds the universe with his mighty and omnipotent word, he has all the resources needed in himself to keep you, Christian, from faltering and falling away. You can take it to the bank, Jude says, because he is 
able. And again, you can see how this exact point would be so relevant to Jude's hearers. Those hearing false teaching and seeing friends with whom they had celebrated the Lord's Supper with. And, 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 and leaders who they personally knew, all denying the faith. They might begin to wonder, is, is this entire thing going off track? Are the gates of hell prevailing against the church? Is God going to lose his own? Is he losing his own? And Jude assures them that will never happen, not for God's elect. Not for those who are truly his. Not for those who are really in the race. They will persevere to the end because God will see to it. He is able. And the image that comes to mind for me when I read this is, is um, the recent debacle at the, the Tour de France race. Um, I, I don't know if you guys saw this. Put the picture. There it is. Um, yeah. Did you guys see this? Yes, this debacle at the Tour de France. The Tour de France is a big bike race. You probably know this. It's in France, um, and uh, it's like the Super Bowl of bicycle racing. You know, it's a big deal. It's 23 days long, and uh, it's for the best of the best. People train their entire lives and don't even get into this race. I mean, it's, it's a really big deal. And one day at the most recent Tour de France, 30 miles from the finish line, this woman is holding out a sign which apparently says, Go grandma and grandpa. Um, man, can you imagine being her grandparents? They must be so embarrassed. Like, our, our granddaughter is an embarrassment. Um, one cyclist runs into her sign, and there becomes this pileup where dozens of cyclists are entangled. Their bikes are entangled. They wreck. They fall into one another. Uh, it, and it holds up the race for several minutes. And from what I understand, even 21 riders were injured. Several of them couldn't even continue because they were so badly injured. And you look at this, and it'd be very easy for some to believe that something like this might happen or is happening in the churches to whom Jude is writing. These false teachers are like this woman, you know, going to cause a huge wreck and cause many to fall. But Jude says, this is not going to happen to my people. This is not going to happen to my church. It won't happen. It can't happen because God is able. And likewise, friends, with all the challenges facing us as a church and us as Christians and all the challenges facing our faith right now that we've discussed throughout this series, and the many challenges we haven't discussed in this series. Friends, even with these challenges, there's no need to panic. There's no need to wring our hands. There's no need to freak out. The preservation of the saints is the anti-freak-out doctrine. There's no need to freak out. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. God is able to keep. He is able to preserve. And he's able to preserve until the end when, when Christ comes and we enter into the glorious presence of our God with great joy. And that's what Jude goes on to speak of in the second half of verse 24. He says this, He's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So Christian, one day, we are going to stand before the presence of our holy God, blameless and filled with great joy, and God is the one who is preparing us and keeping us for that day. And a helpful visual for this, I think, might be 
that of the presentation of a bride on her wedding day. A present, the presentation of a bride to her husband on her wedding day. Only, you know, it's interesting here. Notice that God is both the one presenting and the one being presented to. So he's both the father of the bride and the husband of the bride. He's, he's the father of the bride who does the presenting and the husband, the, the one to whom the bride is being presented. You know, on a wedding day, I often think about this as the, the father of two daughters. On a wedding day, uh, a father will typically walk his daughter down the aisle to her husband. And the minister will say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And he responds, her mother and I do. I think about this day so often. One day, I might be doing this. And in essence, when a father says this, he's saying, this woman came from our very own bodies. We have protected her. We have raised her. We have preserved her. We have fed her and clothed her and cared for her and sacrificed for her. We've shed blood, sweat, and tears for her all these years. And now we present her to you as your beloved bride. And then the father gives the hand of his daughter over to her husband. He presents her to her husband. Well, here, Jude is saying that God is keeping us and preserving and feeding us and caring for us, just like a father does his daughter, so that, if I might mix Jude with, with Paul in Ephesians 5.27, so that he might present the church to himself with splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And, you know, it's interesting here, that, that phrase, without blemish, it's a single word translated as without blemish there, and it's the same word here in Jude 24 translated as blameless. It's the same word, word it could be translated as, as without blemish here in Jude as well. It's the same word. And to carry this wedding metaphor maybe a little bit further, consider, you know, wedding dresses are white. What does that symbolize? That symbolizes the purity and chastity of the bride. Well, that's fitting because as we know, marriage, the marital union of a, of a husband and wife is ultimately pointing to the union between Christ and God and his people, his beloved bride, the church. And on the last day when the church is presented to God, we will be pure and chaste and spotless without blemish. We will be blameless. And of course, it's not saying that we'll reach perfection before that day, as we've already mentioned. But on that day, when Christ returns and glorifies his people, we will be made perfect just as he is perfect. All of those, those, those besetting sins and doubts and temptations that stick to us like burrs, will no longer be there. What has been declared over us in our justification that we are perfectly righteous will become an actual reality then. We will be pure, holy, spotless, blameless, just as Jesus himself is. But then, that's not where the wedding metaphor ends. We could continue it a little bit further. Think about, have you ever seen a bride gloomy on her wedding day? Have you ever seen a, a bride angry? Or I'm, I'm sure it's happened before. But generally, this is one of the happiest days of a bride's life. The day she marries her husband and stands before him in all of her beauty being presented as, her, as the most beloved treasure to a man who loves her. 
being a minister, I've, I've gotten to, to see this probably up, more up close and more often than most people do. And I've seen brides just shining with joy on their wedding day. It's led to smiles and laughter and tears and dancing. Well, similarly, when we, when we are presented to our God on the last day, we will be exceedingly joyful, Jude says. It's a single word here, translated as great joy. It's a word that not only means joy, it means great joy. It means exceeding joy, jubilation, extreme elation. It's, it's, it's hard to capture it really, but we will possess this on the last day because we will come into the presence of the God who is himself the fountain of all joy and whose presence is our bliss. And we will be his in his presence forever. And my friends, you can see how, again, this would be relevant for Jude's hearers, for us this morning, for all those who are called to contend for the faith. We've been called to contend, to fight, to battle for the truth and the life of the church and the world. We've been called to give ourselves over to to protecting and propagating the gospel so that we might proclaim the gospel to the nations and pass it on to the coming generations. And at times, contending means sacrificing. At times, contending very well could mean suffering. It could sometimes mean losing treasured friendships and relationships with family, as some of you know and have experienced. It sometimes means losing financial or vocational opportunities. It could sometimes mean being ostracized and rejected. In some parts of the world, it means being killed. It means being imprisoned. It means being tortured. It will inevitably, for all of us, no matter where we are, at some point in another, cost us something. And if we don't have our eyes set on this day of jubilation, it might not seem worth it. And so in contending, keep your eyes on the prize, namely being presented before God's glorious presence with great joy. Contending sometimes means sacrifice and suffering, and yet we can do it with all joy and with patient endurance because our joy and our prize is not to be found in this life, but in the life to come. And Charles Spurgeon once said, better a brief warfare and eternal rest than false peace and everlasting torment. Better brief contending, brief sacrificing, brief suffering, with eternal bliss to come, then short-lived peace and eternal suffering. And so we still contend despite the cost because the reward at the end of the age is so worth it. We will be in God's presence blameless with exceeding joy because God is able to preserve and to present. And because of this, He is also entitled to our praise. Look with me last at verse 25. Jude writes, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now Jude moves from, he moves into praising the protecting and preserving and presenting God for his preserving and presenting grace. 
And this one who, who preserves and will present is called the only God. The only God. He is utterly unique in a class all his own, without rival, like Simone Biles times infinity. Like he's, he's without rival. He alone is God. And he also calls him our Savior. He is the God who rescues us from eternal destruction, from Satan's sin and eternal death. And he does so, Jude says, through Jesus Christ. He's done this through the eternal Son of God who came and took on human flesh. And in so doing, he lived the life that we should have lived. He lived as the perfect, spotless, blameless man. And as such, he went to the cross to take the penalty that we sinners deserve because of our sin. And on the cross, God poured out all of his holy wrath upon Jesus so that we who trust in him might have God's well-deserved wrath forever turned away and removed from us. And instead, we now get to live as God's own beloved prize and people forever and ever. And in the coming judgment, because of this, we will not meet with the wrath of God like we deserve, but we will be presented as his beloved prize with great joy. And because of this, Jude moves on. He's barely able to contain himself, bursting out in delighted doxology, saying glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Now, I, that word be is in there. I want to get that word out of there. The word be, it's, it, I want to get that out of there. Jude's not wishing or praying for God to have glory, majesty, dominion, and authority forever. Um, he's praising God because glory, majesty, dominion, and authority do already belong to God forever and ever. Uh, Tom Schreiner argues this in his commentary, and I agree that we, we can't pray for God to have these things. He already has these things. We, we, we can't pray for him to have them in eternity past. Eternity past has already passed. And so we can't pray for God to have these things. It's too late to pray for that. And, 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 and so God does not need us to give him these things. He already possesses these things in and of himself. These are the very attributes that God, that belong to him, and they're the very attributes by which he preserves and will present us. And so, instead of be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, it should say to God is glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. It's praise, not prayer. It's praise First, for God's glory and majesty, Jude says. And these two are, are both uh, closely connected, both communicating something of the greatness in the, the beauty and splendor of our God. Uh, one commentator says that this is speaking of, of his awful transcendence. Uh, awful, not in the sense that God's transcendence is bad, but in the sense that it's awe-inspiring, right? That it's 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 terribly overwhelming and dreadfully magnificent that God is himself astonishingly, stunningly, breathtakingly awesome. If you've ever had your breath taken away by, by the Grand Canyon or, or the Rocky Mountains or a, a, a lion at the zoo with its majestical roar, you, you may have experienced an infinitesimal microscopic just taste of what it's like to be in the unveiled presence 
of the glorious and majestical God. To him be glory and majesty, Jude says. And then he also worships God for his dominion and authority. And and again, these are closely related. Uh, This word dominion here is communicating something of, of God's might and strength and power. And authority is communicating of something's rightful ownership over all things. To put it simply, God has both the might and right over all things as the king of the universe. And you can easily see how this relates to God keeping us in his preserving grace. Because he's the one who has all power and authority. He is able to keep his people until the end. His strength is not limited. His arm is not shortened. His ability is not compromised. He is able. He's infinitely able. He's uncompromisingly able. He's immeasurably able, exceedingly able, limitlessly able to keep and preserve and protect you from falling and faltering. And so the application for this point is very simple. Two brief points, very simple and straightforward. Two exhortations. First, praise God for his saving grace. Praise God for his saving grace. That's part of what Jude is doing here. He's praising God for his saving, preserving, presenting grace. Remember the doxology formula. He's naming a thing that God does. And then he's praising him for that thing and naming the attributes related to that particular action. And my exhortation to you then would be to join Jude in his doxology and adoration and praise for God's preserving and presenting grace. Join him. Friends, how much time do we spend simply praising God? In prayer, we we likely give ourselves to to good practices like confessing sin and and requesting things for ourselves and for others. How much time do we spend simply adoring God for his magnificent grace? The God who, who created us from the dust and whose air we breathe. The God who, who, who gives us everything we need and all air and, and breath and life and movement and food and all the gifts that we enjoy. This God against whom we've rebelled and sinned against and committed cosmic treason against this God who took rebellious sinners such as us and instead of damning us to the eternal hell of fire that we deserve, Instead, he took us and he saved us and made us his very own sons and daughters. This God who gave up his very own son to suffer in our place. This God who planned an eternal weight of glory for us and is preserving us for that day. Do we ever give ourselves to simply praising him and adoring him for what he's done for us as our savior? He deserves it. Because of his saving grace, he deserves our adoration and praise. And then secondly, praise God, not just for his saving grace, but simply for his splendorous glory. Praise him not just for what he's done for us, but praise him simply for who he is in himself. His is the glory and majesty and dominion and authority. Have you ever thought about how That even if God never saved us, even if he never did a thing for us, even if Christ never purchased us, 
even if he never promised us a, a, a eternal glory, even if at the end of the ages he decided to damn each one of us to hell forever, he would still deserve our praise and our adoration and worship. Why? Simply because of who he is and his glorious perfections. Simply because of how stunningly beautiful he is. Simply because of how wondrously majestical he is. Simply because of his sovereign power and prestige. Simply because of his incomparable greatness. Because of his glory and majesty and dominion and authority. Because of his awful transcendence. Simply because of who he is and his splendorous glory. He deserves our praise. And so we ought to praise him for simply who he is, for his splendorous glory. So we ought to join Jude in his doxology here. We ought to join him in his adoration of the saving and splendorous God, saying now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, his glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. And all of God's people say together, Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this doxology. We pray that these words on these pages would be written on our hearts, that we delight in who you are and worship you for who you are and worship you for your saving grace. Cause our hearts to be enlivened to your glorious splendor. Help us to, to see in some measure your glory. Help us to be in some measure in this state of great joy in your presence. Give us a foretaste of that day so that we might continue and be preserved for it. And we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on that great day when we are presented before you. Help us to look to it continually, to be reminded of it continually so that we might be preserved, contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints in the midst of all the various challenges facing us now. We pray in Jesus' name.